Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. This episode, we're joined by Kevin Corinth, who's sharing his research on the connection between housing production and the cost and reach of safety net programs, and specifically the Housing Choice Voucher Rent Assistance Program. In a way, this is a very straightforward episode and topic. When rents go up, we have to spend more money on rent assistance for each household, which means we either increase our budgets or help fewer people, probably more often the latter. The flip side to that is if we lower rents, then we can help more people. We know there's a strong link between housing supply and the pace at which rents rise. So if we can estimate, even roughly, how much a given rate of housing production slows rent growth, then we can also get a sense for how many more people we could serve with our existing rent assistance budgets, or with larger budgets for that matter. I say this is straightforward, but it's a connection that policymakers rarely seem to make explicit, so we wanted to have Kevin on to do just that. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, with production support from Claudia Bustamante, Jason Suteja, and Divine Mutoni. Send your questions and comments to shanephillips at ucla.edu, and send a link to the show to a friend or colleague who might find it interesting. We really appreciate it. With that, let's get to our conversation with Kevin Corinth. Kevin Corinth is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and deputy director of AEI's Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility, and he's here to share his research on the potential cost savings to federal rent assistance programs that could be realized from increased housing production in our most restrictive cities. This is right at the nexus of a lot of our interests here at the Lewis Center, and it even has a Los Angeles angle. So, Kevin, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks. Great to be on. And my co-host today is Mike Lenz. Hey, Mike. Hello, Shane. Uh, Welcome, Kevin. I'm excited to talk about this paper today. So we always ask our guests to give us a tour of a city or a neighborhood that they know well. Kevin, I think you are going to talk about Capitol Hill in D.C. for us today. Where are you taking us? Yes, and I hope that's not a repeat for your listeners, but uh, by default, since I've been living here for the past nine years in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of, of Washington, and it's the only one I can really remember. That'll do. So I've been living in, <laughs> so I've been living in Capitol Hill um, with my family, with young kids, so, so that'll shade some of the perspectives I have. But it's it's really a we have a scooting culture um, in DC in, in Capitol Hill. So in, instead of kids riding their bikes like I did when I was growing up in the in the Midwest, um, here it's scooters. I think because the sidewalks are a bit narrower and the roads are a little bit less safe for kids on on bikes. Mm. Um, but there's just a lot of playgrounds. I mean, there's three playgrounds literally within one block of of our house. Our kids walk half a block to school. It's really a nice place for for families. If you're going to come here on a, a tour with young kids, I would suggest bringing scooters and you can scoot to the Capitol building. Very lenient, uh, at least nowadays, um, after being shut down for a while in terms of being able to scoot around in front of the Capitol Hill, uh, in front of the Capitol building. You can go get um, some pizza and have a nice picnic on the Supreme Court lawn, which I still think is one of the neatest things one can do. And if you get tired of of what Capitol Hill and D.C. has to offer, you can take a quick walk over to Union Station um, where you can catch a commuter train to Baltimore. We have some family favorites like the Maryland Science Center. Take the Amtrak a couple hours to Philadelphia or even four hours to to New York City. Again, growing up in Minnesota, the idea of having major cities um, with such quick access was a foreign concept to me. So I find it really neat that even though I have an amazing neighborhood to be in, it's very easy to get some of these other great, um, great cities. We are 67% Minnesotans on this podcast today. <laughs> I had no idea. I cool. was going to say that uh, as a lifelong West Coast resident, the idea of having cities very close to you like that is also a little bit foreign, and but very appealing it's for cool. sure. Yeah, it's six hours from you know where I grew up in St. Paul to Chicago. That's not that's not so easy. Or four hours, I guess. Uh, my scooter story, very recent. Um, <laughs> I my youngest uh, boy is twelve, and he had a couple kids over 
um, and they like to disappear and play Pokemon Go on their on their iPhones. And Hell yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> older kids like as as old as you know forty also like to do that. And at some point, I got a notification that my son had paid Bird scooters. I was like, "Uh oh!" Mm. And <laughs> so then I go down the street, and there are three boys just like flying down the street on scooters. I was like, "Oh!" And of course, one of them's like, oh, my mom lets me do this all the time. And, you know, then I'm, you know, the bad guy. Like, you know. Can't be that bad. Yeah. Like, but none of you guys asked me to if you <laughs> could do this. You could suddenly be unmotorized. Uh, <laughs> and you paid for all of them, probably? Uh, I don't think so. Because they all okay, have their okay. own phones with, you know, accounts. It's it's wild times. What a world. Um, so, Kevin, you know, your kids will be will be well trained. And an electric scooter will be probably old hat for them. It'll be easy. I hope so. Yeah, for now they're <laughs> age four, seven, and, and nine, and I can't imagine putting them on those electric scooters. Yeah. So it is purely old school manual scooters for now. Yes, yes. <laughs> keep it that way as long as you can. So the article that we're talking about today was published in July in the Journal of Urban Economics with your co-author Amelia Irvine, and it's titled "The Effect of Relaxing Housing Market Regulations on Federal Rent Assistance Programs." Kevin and Amelia, you start off this study by making note of the fact that when rents go up, the cost of rent assistance programs like housing choice vouchers also increases, which means we either spend more to help the same number of people or we help fewer people despite spending the same. This happens because housing vouchers subsidize rents on the private market. The government does not set voucher rents directly or the rents that the units are rented for. The next point in the article is that it's is pretty straightforward, and it's that rents tend to rise more slowly in places that build more housing on a per capita basis. This is sometimes disputed in policy circles, but the empirical research is pretty unequivocal. All else equal, more homes equals slower price and rent growth. The next step in the study is estimating how much slower rents would grow under different rates of home building, and that is really the challenge and the heart of this analysis. Once you have those figures, though, it is pretty easy to get a rough idea of how much further our rent assistance dollars could go under various simulations. To tease some headline findings, Kevin, you estimate that if over a decade the Los Angeles metro area produced new housing at the same rate as the 90th percentile metro area, meaning it would be in the top 10% for per capita home building nationwide, rents here would be about 18% lower, and the federal government would save $353 million on its rent assistance program. Or it could actually continue spending the same amount and give vouchers to about 24% more very low-income households. Those are big numbers. They will justifiably, I think, raise some eyebrows, and we're going to talk about them. But, you know, or I raise think... some hopes. Yeah, or some hopes, yes. <laughs> uh, but... I looked up some Zillow data from uh, for the LA metro area. Rents over the last eight years increased by 57%. This is not inflation adjusted, but most of that time there wasn't a whole lot of inflation. So, you know, maybe an 18% reduction over a decade isn't as far-fetched as it might sound to some of us who have just dealt with forever increasing prices. So that is my introduction to this. Kevin, let's hear yours here. Tell us what interested you about this nexus between housing production, private market rents, and the cost of federal rent assistance programs. I feel like you don't often see these things linked together, and that's part of why we were really interested in having you on. You've usually got the market and housing production and rents on one end or one area of academia, and you've got the government and rent assistance and other subsidy programs in some other area. It's a totally different kind of analysis, and they're treated as pretty distinct subjects most of the time, no? I, I agree completely. I mean, my, my research is actually traditionally focused more on the government assistance side of things especially for homelessness and rental assistance programs, and then how these programs fit within the broader safety net in the United States. But as more research has come out uncovering the really wide swath of negative consequences of overly restrictive housing regulations, it's hard just not to see the connection to everything else. Mm -hmm. To me, the most pernicious effects are less access to opportunity, um, so fewer high-paying jobs for adults, lower-quality schools for kids, 
just less healthy communities in general for families. It's also meant more segregation of people across socioeconomic lines. And as our paper points out, it means a safety net that works less efficiently. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I, I think these topics should be merged together. You know, advocates for more housing subsidies and advocates for more housing supply, I think, share many of the same important values, including concerns about families' ability to, to afford housing, um, opportunities for kids and less skilled workers to uh, move up, uh, and then most fundamentally, inclusion in society. Um, there's certainly some disagreements about the ways to achieve these goals via policy, but but I think there should be areas of agreement as well. And I, I hope that our paper um, is just one example that shines a light on some of these interconnections. And when we recognize some of these shared values, there are ways to achieve these same underlying goals um, with, with better policy. And to set the stage a little bit here, just on the programs themselves, can you give us a quick overview of the scale of the various federal rent assistance programs? I think at HUD, at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, you have really the big two are housing choice vouchers, where you have both tenant-based vouchers that follow tenants and they can take them from unit to unit, and project-based vouchers that are tied to a specific unit or building. And then you have public housing, which has been around quite a bit longer, but has been kind of dwindling as a source of, of, of housing supply. Then you also have the low-income housing tax credit, which is not a HUD program, but it does fund the construction and rehabilitation of housing that's then rented to low-income households at below market prices. And you know, historically, this has produced about 100,000 units a year, which is pretty significant. How much do we spend on these various programs and how many people do they help? And are there any other federal housing assistance programs, especially on the rental side, that you think are worth mentioning in the same breath as these others? Sure, I'd be happy to provide that overall context. And I think it helps to put these housing programs in the context of other safety net programs that we have. Mm. Um, So you listed the main rental assistance programs, uh, the main HUD ones, housing choice vouchers, project-based assistance, um, and public housing, in addition to LIHTC. Overall, we spend about $50 billion a year on those programs, which is a lot when you compare that to other safety net programs. For example, we spend only about $30 billion on cash welfare. Mm. And at least before the pandemic, we spent about $60 billion on, on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which was formerly known as food stamps. So the key difference, though, between SNAP and housing assistance is that SNAP provides benefits to anyone who is eligible. Housing assistance is different in that it's not an entitlement. So even if you qualify based on your income, uh, you may not actually get the assistance. In fact, only about one in four eligible families actually receives housing assistance. Right. So, and one reason for that is that rent is expensive, especially in supply-constrained areas. So the average cost to serve a family in Los Angeles for one month is about $1,500 or around $18,000 for a full year. By contrast, the maximum annual SNAP benefit for a family of three is about uh, $9,000, so about half of that. So we're serving a lot less people with housing assistance, but we're providing a much higher average benefit for those who get it. Uh, Now, in terms of specific programs um, within the housing assistance realm, housing choice vouchers are the biggest. So they vouchers serve about 2.2 million families each year at a cost of about $23 billion. So vouchers are vouchers that the tenants can take out into the market and lease up with a private landlord. Um, Mm -hmm. Then we move into project-based assistance, where these are um, the government directly funding specific landlords and specific units who are then renting out those um, units to recipient families. And project-based assistance serves about 1.2 million families at a cost of $12 billion a year. Um, And finally, we have public housing, which is housing owned and operated by by the government that serves right around 1 million families a year at a cost of 7.4 billion dollars basically to operate um, and maintain those units although doesn't include right doesn't take into account the the cost to build them and also the probably not the the backlog on renovations and maintenance and stuff as well exactly and and so those are the the main ones i mean there's lots of 
smaller, actually lots and lots of smaller <laughs> programs, um, yeah. which actually some co-authors and I have been uh, previously tried to start to, to quantify. But there's a U U.S. Department of Agricultural Rural Rental um, Subsidy Program. Um, there's homeless assistance programs, which are are important, but that's more like five billion dollars a year. So, so I think we've we've characterized the main HUD ones in LIHTC are really where the, the major money is. And LIHTC is also in the realm of $20 billion a year. Is that about right? It's a tax expenditure, so it's funded in a very different way than just like a line item in the federal budget. But is that roughly what it ends up costing effectively? Yeah, ex exactly. In terms of the tax revenue foregone, because these are right. tax credits that are offered through a roundabout way to developers um, in return for a promise to lease out 30% of units at a certain rate to certain types of tenants. Um, but, but yes, that's approximately the cost of in terms of uh, tax revenue foregone, which is a, a real cost. Yeah, yeah. So when I introduced you, I gave a very simplistic overview of your model for this problem. And just to summarize that again, it's, it's essentially when rents go up, rental assistance programs cost more or serve fewer people. At the same time, building more housing keeps rents from going up as quickly. So if we can estimate how much different rates of home building will lower rents, different increased rates of home building will lower rents, we can also estimate the benefit to rent assistance programs and their recipients. Before we get into the methodological details here, is there anything else we should know about your approach at this more conceptual level, how you approach this question? No, I think you summed it up very well um, earlier. I mean, the key to all of this is that the government wants each family to pay only 30% of its income on rent. So that means mm -hmm. that when the market rent goes up, the government has to absorb the entire cost increase since the family's contribution won't change. It's fixed at that 30% mm. amount. This right. can lead to very big effects on rent increases on how many families are, are actually served. So so maybe just a quick example to help illustrate this and, and why the effects yeah, can yeah. be pretty big. So, so say every family can afford to contribute about $900 per month toward their rent. If the market rent were $1,000, then it costs the government just $100 per month to serve each family. So now say that the market rent rises from $1,000 to $1,100 per month, which is just a 10% increase in market rents. Well, now the government has to pay actually $200 per month for every family, the $1,100 market rent minus the $900 contribution that the family makes. So that's doubling the cost for the government to serve mm -hmm. these families. And so the government can serve only half as many families due to just a 10% increase in rents. So this simple logic is really the basis of the model. And again, it tells you why we simulate some pretty substantial effects um, that people should be hopeful about rather than too skeptical of. <laughs> um, there are some other factors that we include in the model. Um, such as that the fact that wages might adjust as, as more households um, join an area and, and which could increase labor supply and reduce reduce wages and offset some of these government costs. We we do account for other things, but those factors don't really change the underlying um, story that regulations that control housing supply are a really big deal for rental assistance programs. And I mentioned that the assertion that more supply lowers rents is a little bit contested. Again, not so much in the literature. So are there just a few you know, studies we could maybe point folks toward? We can include these in, in the show notes. Mike, feel free to chime in here too. Sure. I mean, one of the more recent ones is uh, by Raven Malloy and some, some co-authors. Uh, they actually looked at the effect of uh, regulatory stringency on market rents. And admittedly, they find a smaller effect of regulations on market rents than you find for home prices in terms of purchasing new homes. But nonetheless, a relatively important effect that was pretty substantial, at least for those who had the areas with the most stringent regulations, um, and actually uh, some effects that are in line with what we we simulate in our our model. Yeah, and I think you know we've had discussions uh, certainly in on this podcast about about the effects of land use regulations on prices and and on no, rents. No, never, <laughs> no, we would never discuss that. Uh, and, and you know, and, and you know, we've published our own our work on that, confirming some of these connections that Kevin is, is summarizing. 
And, you know, I think all I'll say rather than rattling off a list of studies is like where most listeners might get hung up on is the effects on a neighborhood versus the effects on like an entire regional housing market, something as large as Los Angeles or Los Angeles County or Southern California, you know, commuting zone or something like at the neighborhood level, we're already getting, you know, I think plenty of studies and evidence that like even at the neighborhood level, more housing supply does help more than it hinders housing affordability. At the regional level, this has long been fairly uncontroversial, you know, to the extent to which you believe good economic research. These connections are pretty clear that you need more housing supply to avoid out of control um, increases in either rent or housing prices. And, you know, over the latter half of the 20th century and the early 21st, we have gone in the other direction in terms of making it more challenging to build in more places. All right. So let me try to summarize the research question here. Let's just go with LA only here, even though you did look at some other metro areas. If the LA metro built housing at a rate equal to the 90th percentile metro area for 10 years, how much lower would rents be at the end of that 10-year period? Is that generally correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we're not saying that rents are going to go down from where they are now. It's not saying that, oh, if rents are, say, $2,000 okay. a right. month today, they'll be actually um, less than $2,000 10 years from now. Right. We're just saying that relative to what they otherwise would have been 10 years from now, they'll actually be um, about 18% lower. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that is a very big difference. Um, and I think really important to clarify because yeah, to say that if we had started this increased home building 10 years ago, they would be 18% lower today than they were 10 years ago. That is a, a, a very bold statement that I think, you know, we haven't really seen many places, even those that do build at that level, their prices have not gone down, but their prices have climbed more slowly than they have in places like Los Angeles. So uh, good to get that clarification out of the way. So now let's get into how you actually estimate the impact of increased home building on rents. And again, we can use your analysis of Los Angeles as an example here. As I said, under your preferred model, and we'll talk about what that was, you find that rents are 18.1% lower at the end of a decade of sort of supercharged home building. You also ran these numbers for 10 other metro areas that have similarly restrictive housing development regulations and limited production. But LA is pretty representative of the results overall, other than being a larger city than most of these other places. Can you walk us through that process, starting with how you decided the amount of housing production to model in the various scenarios in your study? And then how you translated those production rates into changes in rent. I think there are a lot of assumptions that go into this because you're, you know, you're modeling a counterfactual. It's a world that could have been, but never was. And so I think it's really important that we're clear about what those assumptions are and that we try to stress test them a bit. Sure. I, I first want to completely agree with you about the caveats <laughs> of an exercise like this that simulates the effects of a hypothetical policy, which does, in fact, require a lot of assumptions. I've increasingly come to the mind that we can't constrain ourselves to ask only about the effects of policies that actually took place and for which we have a way to cleanly identify their effects. Policymakers just yeah. don't have the luxury of, of only considering policies with mounds of directly applicable evidence from recently enacted policies. They also need mm -hmm. estimates of how future policies would affect outcomes that they care about. Of course, it's uh, important to rely on assumptions that are backed by um, the academic literature as, as much as possible and to show how results would change under different assumptions. But I, I would argue that even when we can't provide an exact estimate, um, providing an expected range of magnitudes is still valuable and, and really just necessary um, for rational policymaking decisions. So, mm -hmm. so with that off my chest, <laughs> um, I, I would be happy to get into some of the crucial assumptions, which I, I think are important to interrogate a little bit. So let's start, as you mentioned, with the level of housing production uh, that we assume. So as you noted, for our uh, baseline estimates, we assume that Los Angeles could build as many new units per year on a percentage basis as the 90th percentile metropolitan area. That means that instead of expanding its housing stock by about 0.6% per year, 
which is the past decade trend, uh, it would expand by 1.6% per year. Now, is, mm-hmm. is that realistic? I mean, I, I guess no, in the sense that I don't think Los Angeles is actually going to do that. But would that building rate be plausible if it pursued aggressive reform of building and land use regulations that put it on par with less supply constrained areas? And I think the answer to that question is yes. So by definition, 10% of metro areas built at a faster rate than the 1.6% rate that we assume for Los Angeles. So places that built faster than that 1.6% rate include places like Austin, Texas, um, Orlando, and, and Salt Lake City. Now, it's it's mm-hmm. true that it may be easier to build in some of those areas than Los Angeles because they might have more undeveloped land. But some of those areas, like Salt Lake City, also face severe constraints on buildings, such as big mountains and, and lakes. Mm-hmm. So, of course, many regulations restrict how densely housing can be built in already developed land as well. And so undeveloped land isn't necessary for substantial expansions of the housing stock. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's it's probably worth noting here that in the Los Angeles metro area, there are about 4.7 million homes and 13 or 14 million people. And so a 1.6% growth rate would be about 75,000 units a year, which frankly, you know, it's it's a lot more than we're building. The whole state has only been building about 100,000 units or less per year for quite a while. So this would be a big increase from where we're at. But, you know, 75,000 into 4.7 million is not uh, stupendous. And the city of LA actually according to their revised housing element, is supposed to plan for about 56,000 units per year over an eight-year period yeah. just in the city, a city of 4 million people in a region of 13 or 14 million. So if anything, we are actually calling for, in our own you know, laws, in our housing element that has been adopted by the city and kind of pushed and authorized by state and regional governments, that we should be building actually a lot more than 1.6% uh, per year at least for the for the next decade or so. Okay, so that's the home building rate. I will say you did also look at uh, what the impacts would be at the 75th and 95th percentile. Is that correct? That's right. And so the next really important consideration here is the price elasticity of demand. So you chose a figure of 075 and again, you considered a, a range of values here. But tell us what the price elasticity of demand represents in the least economist <laughs> terms possible. And again, kind of justify that 0.75 figure for us. All right. I'm going to try my best here. I am a University of Chicago trained economist, so I see everything in supply and demand. <laughs> so I will try to put off my econ. Um. I, I will say I have looked at a lot of supply and demand curves in my life and... It is still not intuitive to me. It, I don't know that it ever will be. It, it is only just took not me the way my brain works. Four, four micro courses before <laughs> any of it made sense. But good luck, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me try here. So, so, so as you mentioned, first you need to know how much more we're going to build, and we're saying it's this one point six percent rate of building, which would increase the housing stock over the course of, of ten years. So now we have to translate that increased amount of building into how much rents will fall relative to that counterfactual baseline. So to do so, um, we need to know how prices and quantities are linked together. And to do so, we rely on studies that have looked at how the demand for housing changes when prices changed. So at a very basic level, if demand for housing is not very sensitive to price, because people are just going to live in Los Angeles no matter how much it costs, then building a lot of new housing will reduce the price by a lot. There's just not a lot of demand for the new housing, so prices have to fall a lot to fill up all those homes. On the other hand, if demand for housing is very sensitive to price, because people will move to LA only if housing gets a little bit cheaper, then building a lot Mm -hmm. of new housing will not reduce the price as much. There's just a lot of new people who will buy or lease up the new housing at just a slightly lower price because they are so price sensitive. Now, our baseline assumption is that consumers are somewhere in between these two extreme scenarios. Basically, we assume that for every 10% decrease in rent, there's a 7.5% increase in families who are willing to rent homes in Los Angeles. 
So while estimates vary a lot across studies in terms of what this price elasticity is, what that 7.5% or 10% or 5%, our reading of the literature is that this is a central estimate. If you think that consumers are actually less responsive to changes in rent than we state, then rents would fall by even more than our baseline simulation suggests. If you think that they're more responsive, then rents would fall by less. And we do show in the paper how results would change um, with different elasticities. And it does change um, substantially. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you do get substantial cost savings from deregulation and more building, sort of regardless of which elasticity you choose. Mike, is there uh, like, I feel like we could use more clarification on this. I don't know exactly the right direction to go. I think part of it is like, I'm much more familiar with the price elasticity of supply. Right, and so right. thinking about this in terms of demand is, is, a, is a challenge for me. One reason why the demand response is interesting to me is because I'm wondering how much you're accounting for population growth from outside Los Angeles or household formation from within Los Angeles that might respond to this decrease in prices. Is that related to this discussion of elasticity that you gave us right now, in which you're, the two kind of extremes that you've mapped out is, you know, one way I would put that is like, there are 100 people with offers from, uh, from UCLA and USC and an aerospace industry that is located in Los Angeles. Hundred people outside, and they're only going to move in if the you know cost of a two bedroom apartment goes from two thousand to fifteen hundred or something. But then in scenario B, those hundred people take the job and come in, and they don't even care what the rent is because they have to move to Los Angeles. They have to have this job. So is is part of that demand kind of this this story of this elasticity of demand? Is part of that this story of people moving in and forming households and how responsive they are to those prices? It is. And I think that was a very much better way of putting it than I than I did. So so think of Los Angeles housing as any other good, like bananas. Yeah. Right? Like the potential consumers of Los Angeles housing, it's not just people who live in Los Angeles who may form smaller right, households right, right. through smaller families. Or, or people who may buy second homes, but it's really everybody in the United States. And so as the price of Los Angeles housing goes down, that means there's going to be more demand for Los Angeles housing from not only people already in within Los right. Angeles, but also people from outside of Los Angeles. And if there's a lot of people who are really willing to come in when the price falls just a little bit, then prices aren't going to fall very much when you expand housing supply a lot. Mm -hmm. But if there are a lot of people in Los Angeles there and they're going to be there no matter what, as you said, then it's really hard to attract more people in. And so you're going to have to see a very big decline in prices. That supply is going to have a big effect, right? That supply is going to have a big effect because there's not all these super price responsive people who are going to jump in and then, you know, kind of create Mm -hmm. this demand Mm -hmm. demand versus supply problem all over again is one way to think. Yeah, Yeah. exactly right. Okay. That, yeah, that is, that is helpful. And, you know, I think it's also just worth saying here, some people might hear this and think, well, a lot of people do want to live in LA. It's got great weather and great, you know, amenities and, and tons of jobs and everything. And so a lot of people, you know, really do want to live here. And I think people might hear that and think, well, then, you know, what's the point of building a lot of housing if people are just going to come in and and move here and it's not really going to have an effect on prices? And I think if the proposal were actually just like only Los Angeles should build a lot of housing and everyone else should just keep doing what they're doing, that would be bad. I think to some extent that prediction might come true. I think that even if that were the case, it's a little overstated because not everyone wants to be in Los Angeles. Just talk to people around the country. <laughs> um, but like that point aside, what we would really hope to see is all the places that people yeah. really want to live building a lot. And then people really have many choices. And so no single location is going to draw them all in because yeah. there's a whole mix of things people are looking for beyond the price, um, even if they're just kind of limiting themselves to the, to the high cost coastal cities. There's a lot of 
decisions to make about where you want to live for for jobs and you know the culture and, and a million other yeah. things. I want to I want to give Kevin a chance to <laughs> to explain to you know answer the questions we keep throwing at him. But you know I, I think that's a good a very important point, Shane. Right? Is like Los Angeles is not in a vacuum. It's in a you know massive country of over three hundred million people in lots of metropolitan areas, and and there's competition for jobs and housing and people that and workers that kind of involve all of these other places. But when thinking about like Los Angeles's intrinsic, you know, attraction, which we all hate the traffic, we all love the weather. There's obviously something that brings a lot of people here because there are a lot of people here, right? Like there <laughs> is a high baseline attraction to Los Angeles. But like I think what Kevin would say, I don't know why I'm answering this question for him, is like <laughs> what really matters is at the margins, right? Like there's some people who kind of want to move to LA and there's some people that would move to LA if it were just cheaper. And so these are the this is the subset of people that we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, that the numbers are bigger in the aggregate in Los Angeles versus Kansas City. But like the bait, you know, the kind of the, those marginal decisions are similar everywhere to some extent. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You do want to look at the margin. And, and I think your point is exactly right about sort of if everybody does this, if everyone sort of relaxes their supply constraints, you're going to see a much bigger decrease in prices everywhere. So even if, mm -hmm. so if just Los Angeles builds more and people will move in, um, you'll still see some decrease in prices, but people will move in and which will mitigate that to some extent. But if every other large metro area like San Francisco and New York City and Washington, D.C. also engage in aggressive regulation, then people now have lots of options. Um, it's not that just the price of Fuji apples went down, but Red Delicious apples went down as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think the last assumption here that I want to ask a question about is this cross price elasticity. And, you know, if I'm understanding this one correctly, and, and I, it's entirely possible I'm not, <laughs> this is probably the part I understood the, the least. I'll just say you assigned a or assumed a cross price elasticity of zero. I took that to mean that you're assuming owner occupied housing, any owner occupied housing that is built will have no impact on rents. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And that okay. sort of uh, makes that's a pretty conservative, conservative assumption. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, if Los Angeles were to build a lot more, they're going to build some more rental housing and they're going to build some more owner-occupied housing. Mm. Um, we're basically saying, forget about all the owner-occupied housing. If only the renter-occupied housing is what affects rents, um, this is what you'll see. You might actually see something something else. You might see that when you build more owner-occupied housing, People sort of move from the renter market and say, now I can afford to buy a home. Um, and they may move from the rent, rental market into the owner-occupied market. Yeah. Yeah. That was really what I was getting at. And I think that's probably likely. It's maybe hard to model and safe to assume that the zero impact. But it seems like some impact is likely. And just so the listeners know, in the study, you assume that about a third of this production, this 1.6% annual growth, is in owner-occupied housing. And so you're just kind of dismissing the, the impact of that entirely just to be safe. And so there are, you know, assumptions made here, like 90th percentile home building, uh, a 0.75% elasticity of demand. These things can be debated up or down. But you can't go any lower than the owner-occupied housing having zero impact. Uh, so you can only kind of go up on the actual effect on rents from what you're assuming. Right, right. Okay. So with all of that explained, tell us how much you estimate this increased production would lower rents in LA and what impact that would have on federal rent assistance programs, both in terms of or kind of either in terms of money saved or the number of households assisted. So let's start with LA, and maybe if you can just share the the total amount for all 11 metro areas that you looked at as well for all those figures. 
Sure. So Not as, as each metro area, just all of them <laughs> in aggregate. <laughs> Will do. Um, so I, I think as we, we mentioned, you know, we estimate that market rents would fall by 18% in Los Angeles after 10 years of increased building, again, relative to the baseline rent increase level. So given that decrease in rent, it's relatively straightforward to simulate how much the government would save, since, as I mentioned before, all of the reduction in market rent for subsidized households accrues to the government. There are a couple of caveats, which I won't go into, including that wages could adjust, that people may accrue some of the savings. But for the most part, then that's that's right. So in terms of results, uh, so the effect on federal rental assistance programs for Los Angeles would be substantial. We estimate an annual savings of $353 million, um, which is 19% of, of current total spending on vouchers and project-based assistance in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. Um, if those funds were reinvested in serving additional families, that would mean 24% more families could be served. I should be clear that this would come nowhere close to filling the unmet need for rental assistance in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and the majority of eligible families would continue to be turned away. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, 24% is um, an important increase and means thousands more uh, families would get access to assistance who weren't otherwise getting it. In terms of all areas, so so Los Angeles is not the only place in the country that has uh, substantial supply constraints on building new housing. So a, a paper by Ed Glazier and Joe Jerko from 2018 classified about 11 metropolitan areas um, that were severely supply constrained, where prices were really driven up a lot more than they should have been because of uh, how hard it is to to build new housing and the restrictions on on land use. So if you take all 11 of these areas, and that includes places like San Francisco and Seattle and Denver and New York City, uh, Washington, D.C. and Boston um, et al., see the paper, total savings would amount to $1.8 billion annually, which mm. could be used to serve 5% more families. So I, I think you could be underwhelmed by $1.8 billion. As we mentioned before, we spend $50 billion annually on rental assistance programs. So $1.8 billion is not enormous. But remember that we're only talking about 11 metropolitan areas that are going to see any effect at all, um, mm -hmm. because these are the only places with the most severe supply constraints. I'd also suggest that you know, that's important money. So HUD spends about $5 billion a year on homeless assistance. So, so $1.8 billion is important and it would be important to the families who, who would receive it. Um, but again, we're not talking here about solving the entire shortage of uh, rental assistance um, shortfall. Yeah. Well, then what are we even doing here? <laughs> um, could you say a bit about the the sensitivity of these results to different assumptions in the model? Because, you know, depending on what these elasticities and home building rates are, there's a pretty wide variation, right? Sure. I mean, I would say that under all of the pretty reasonable assumptions, the most reasonable assumptions on things like building rates and these price elasticities and cross-price elasticities, um, I think we get important effects. So again, at, at baseline, we're talking about $353 million of savings for Los Angeles. Uh, it's something like around, say, $200 million in Los Angeles if we use our most conservative um, assumptions, which would still mean, uh, say, more than a 10% increase in families served. So so that's, that's real money mm -hmm. and it's uh, a real increase in families served. Uh, on the other end, uh, I think you could certainly argue for um, uh, sort of more liberal assumptions in terms of the elasticities and, and higher building rates. Then you could get much higher savings, something close to close to a billion dollars um, in savings for Los Angeles alone. So so while there is a range, I, I think we're somewhat close to sort of the central expectation. You could see a little bit less or, or substantially more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just a, a point of clarification on the rent reduction figure. So you said 18.1% for the Los Angeles metro area. Just to assign this a round number, let's say that rents went up by... 30% over a 10-year period in the Los Angeles metro area in the real world. Like, that's what actually happened. When you say LA rents went down by 18.1%, that's 18% of that 30%. It's not they went from 30 
to 12, it's they went from 30 to, you know, 24 something. Not quite. So okay. it's it would be 18 percent of 130 uh, okay. percent. Um, so it's saying so say whatever rents are in 10 years, say it's two thousand mm-hmm. dollars it's going to be 18 percent less than that two thousand okay. dollars so it, it's something in between what you said yeah the the 130 percent you're talking about is it's sort of taking the the hundred percent rent that you started with adding 30 percent. so that's where the 130 so okay so yeah if rents did go up uh 30 percent over that 10-year period but then you know the counterfactual is you built at the 90th percentile and rents were 18 percent lower an 18% reduction on 130% gets you pretty close back to where you started. A little bit higher, but you know that's that's significant. Yes. So another limitation that you mention in the article, Kevin, is that as lots of new homes are built and rents fall, at least relative to the, the counterfactual, many people would probably seek out higher quality housing rather than just accept lower prices and kind of stay where they're at. This would raise equilibrium rents above the levels that you estimate in the study. So some of these federal rent assistance savings would not materialize. I thought you had some interesting responses to that possibility, one that reforms the program a bit and another that just sort of accepts this new reality of people choosing to pay more uh, for higher quality housing. So could you say a bit about both of those options? Yeah, definitely. So the the simulation is focused on how rents change for a fixed quality of housing. So if in fact housing quality does rise, uh, market rents may not fall by as much as we say in the paper. Mm-hmm. Now, from a policy perspective, there's a couple ways to deal with this. One way is just to let the program work as it was designed, which means that tenants will get higher quality units, um, mm-hmm. but we may not see quite as many new tenants um, getting assistance as we said. The the better option in, in my mind would be to peg the fair market rent um, to something lower in the rent distribution. Perhaps say the so currently the fair market rent is pegged at about the 40th percentile or just below the median uh, of market rents. Say you instead pegged that at about the 30th percentile of market rents. Now, these units would be similar quality to what they have now, but you'd allow more people to rent out units and be served by the voucher program. Just given how many people receive no assistance at all, uh, I do think it's better to serve more people rather than trying to boost the quality uh, of housing. Fortunately, the physical quality of housing has improved a lot in recent decades. um, And the biggest problem now is the lack of affordability, not as much problems with the housing itself. So Mm. the goal should be to serve more people rather than providing better housing to those who are currently lucky to get anything at all. Yeah. And and one relatedly, one thing that I think we struggle with in uh, providing more housing to more people, which I, I agree with you should be or providing housing to more people, not necessarily providing more housing, but providing housing to more people is the issue of people being able to actually successfully lease up with their voucher. And so one thing that pe- that I think policymakers and and scholars have been both puzzled by and frustrated by over the years is that no matter where you go in the country, you know, well south of 100% of the people who receive vouchers use them. So we call that the utilization rate. And, you know, that's usually something like 25 to 30% people do not use their vouchers um, that they are given in a given year. They usually have six months to sign a lease, basically, and then they don't sign that lease and they forego the voucher. What happens after that depends, I think, on, on the housing authority. But the question I have is, do you think that a lower value voucher that might come about because housing is less expensive might be more likely to go unused or would like the additional housing stock make it easier to find housing and perhaps raise utilization rates? I don't know how much you all have thought about the utilization problem relative to what you're looking at. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. And it's something that we note some uncertainty about in the paper. I I would suspect that as um, supply was expanded and the market in Los Angeles became not quite as tight, that you'd likely see an increase in successful utilization of vouchers. 
the places with the lowest utilization rates are places with the tightest markets. Um, so places like Los Angeles. So it, I think it stands to figure that as you loosen the market, there became more vacancies as more units came online. Um, you probably see a, a more successful utilization rate. Yeah. And I think another thing I would pile on here is that some of the research that we have on the value of when we change the dollar value of vouchers, looking at things like the small area fair market rent program, that you're able to use those vouchers in the higher diversity of, of places, right? Where, you know, this, you started off talking about access to opportunity, right? And issues of segregation and the fact that people with vouchers or without kind of housing subsidies, they're not able to access neighborhoods um, with better job and public safety and education uh, resources that like it stands to reason, I think, as well, where if we build more housing in more places, then there's a, a greater diversity of places for people with subsidies to live. But I do have the, you know, I think a valid concern here is that by lowering the rent threshold, you know, as a percentile across the whole market. So it's 40th percentile in most places. Now, if you lowered it to the 35th percentile or 30th percentile rent, are you going to kind of encourage more segregation or at least relative to mm. the baseline or the scenario where you keep it at that 40th percentile mark? I think there's a real valid concern of a trade-off that might mm -hmm. occur mm -hmm. there, which, you know, in the same way as we don't necessarily want to think just about cost per household or, or other things, we also want to think about kind of the, the equity implications of this and, and whether... Okay, we're helping more people, but a greater share of them are in communities with fewer resources. Like that's not the best outcome yet either, or it's at least like a a trade off that we really would want to debate a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that, and I know I certainly believe the research that kind of where you grow up does matter. We've seen that with moving to opportunity, with public housing demolitions, neighborhood matters, and there is reason to be concerned about where people are are living. That said, I think the first order problem is we have a lot of people who want these um, vouchers mm -hmm. um, and very few people actually get them. In terms of fairness, we should be lowering the amount so more people can have access. There's different ways to do it. I mean, one way is to decrease the amount of the voucher, say to the 30th percentile, make the 30th percentile the, the fair market rent. I mean, another way is to put time limits. Um, so this is something that even like Rob Collinson and Ingrid Gould Allen have talked about. If not everyone can have a permanent voucher, what about having everyone gets a couple years of a voucher and maybe that helps them to stabilize, get access to a new neighborhood and move up that way? Uh, I'm sure many listeners <laughs> will say, just fund the program and everybody gets the voucher <laughs> and you get it at the 40th or 50th percentile, we're good. But I think in a world of um, where that doesn't happen, we should think creatively about what our, our goals are of this program um, and how can we do it in the most um, fair and efficient way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, we actually had Rob Collinson on a while back to talk about vouchers and you know, maybe a hybrid here that is, is part of what he's proposed is this small area fair market rents where you have different rent thresholds by zip code or other kind of smaller geographies. But rather than it being at the 40th percentile in those geographies, maybe it's at the 30th. So people still have access to that kind of 30th and below housing in every neighborhood. It just costs it, it costs a little more in these higher cost areas, but you actually they find some savings in the lower cost areas. So maybe it mostly balances out. Yeah, I, I do want to actually just quickly, you know, have you talk about that question of well, why don't we just fully fund this? Like, why are we talking about five or 10 percent improvements when 75% of people who are eligible don't get anything at all out of this program. What do you say to the people who say, you know, if we just made this an entitlement, if we increased federal funding so everyone eligible could get a voucher, we wouldn't have to be pinching pennies and worrying about, you know, these, these really challenging trade-offs about do we help more people less or do we help fewer people more? What do you say to that? Well, I would say they should care even more about our paper. Um, so, so if you had an entitlement to housing assistance and every eligible household received a voucher, then uh, government savings from deregulation would be even even larger. 
because、mm. the government would, in that case, be paying the excessively high market rents for a lot more people. And then you could,、uh, depending on what your preferences are, but say then you put those savings into the SNAP program、um, or cash assistance programs. Or whatever you want,、um, so you, you don't get a, around this problem by simply having an entitlement to housing assistance.、Mm-hmm. Um, deregulation would have even more cost savings in that case. And, and, and in terms of what the preferred policy outcome is, I, I, th- I think it depends on a lot of value judgments about one, how much assistance to provide to low-income families, and then two, how to provide that assistance, whether it's in the form of specific things like. This amount for housing, this amount for food and nutrition, this amount for for health insurance,、um, or do you want some more flexible assistance? Do you want to put requirements on it or t- or time limits or not? And I, I think there will be a lot of disagreement on those questions, and and rightly so. But I think there should be much more agreement on the smaller question that we pose in this paper. Everybody wants people to have. Better access to lower cost housing. Everyone wants to serve more people with the funds that we spend, regardless of what that level is. Therefore, you know, regulation is deregulation is good for actually many, many reasons.、Uh, but this paper adds one more, one more reason. To follow up on that, Kevin, as well. I mean, there's fair amount of research that would suggest、uh, pretty strongly that. If we immediately served the other seventy-five percent of people that don't or th- that qualify for vouchers but do not receive it right now, that landlords would eat a lot of that subsidy, and the cost of housing for everybody would just go up because there's much more, you know, money earmarked for housing, right? So. You know, I think that's another reason why you have to link these 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 two issues: land use regulation and the value or mechanisms of housing subsidies together. Another housing subsidy that gets some attention in this paper, Kevin, is the low income housing tax credit. We talked about that briefly at the outset.、Um, As we discussed, it's a tax credit that is the main source of funding for below market rate housing production in this country. And what you do in this paper、uh, with regards to the low income housing tax credit program is that you simulate what would happen if we, instead of relaxing land use regulations, we really increase the, the scope of of that tax credit program, doubling the funding for it. I think is doubling the, the funding.、Assumption. Yes,、yeah. thank you, Shane. And you find that the effects are pretty minimal. You know, first I want you to just kind of give those basic comparisons, and then I think what other folks might critique there is that. The low-income housing tax credit program is going to produce a housing subsidy for people on its own, right? It's not; its main mechanism is not to make the the voucher program kind of more effective for people. So, you know, what do you just kind of those two things?、Um, how do you respond to that? Sure. So let me preface this by saying that I, I don't think our simulation should shift your thinking much at all on whether LIHTC is、mm-hmm. a good way to provide affordable housing. The point we make in the paper is simply that because LIHTC crowds out to some substantial extent、uh, mm-hmm. market rate housing, expanding LIHTC subsidized housing is not another way to reduce the costs of our rental housing assistance programs in supply constrained areas. Okay. Of course, LIHTC wasn't intended <laughs> to reduce the cost of our other programs, but it's making、um, that point. That said, I I will not defend LIHTC on other grounds. I think there are reasons to worry about relying on LIHTC to increase affordable housing, especially that much of the subsidy is captured by parties other than the tenants, and it's also not well targeted to the the neediest families, unless it gets layered on with vouchers and other forms of of assistance, which further increases its costs. Um, if we're going to help families better afford housing, I think it's best to provide the assistance directly to the families while building lots of market rate housing without lots of excessive burdens, so that families have as much choice as possible、um, with as small as a cost to the government as possible.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most people probably aren't super aware of the crowd out effects of of LIHTC, you know, and you know some people don't care because they don't really want to see a lot of market rate housing production, and they are happy to have that replacement. But it's definitely something that more people need to be aware of. I do think a lot of the critique 
of Litech rests on that crowd out question. Yeah. And the estimates are have a, a very wide range. One of the more recent studies, which is itself from back in 2010, it estimated that the crowd out, at least at kind of the local level, was approaching 100%. So for every Litech affordable housing unit you're building, you're building roughly one less market rate unit. And so that the overall supply benefit is not really there at all. I suspect that's an overestimate to some extent, but you know, an argument I make in favor of Litech is that unlike vouchers, it is directly increasing the supply. But the more crowd out there is, which is just something we don't know very well, but it certainly exists. Uh, but the more crowd out there is, the less the supply is actually increasing through that program. So I think maybe for our last question here, or questions, we should talk a little bit about policy. And a big question that I had, and this is really a recurring question for me, is whether at these higher rates of production or this higher production goal, developers would consistently, at, you know, for a sustained period, build and build and build and build if prices were maybe not only stabilizing, but in some cases falling what would it take for us to actually, you know, this is effectively increasing in Los Angeles, this would mean increasing our production by about two and a half times. So like, how do we get there? How do we know that developers, as prices start to stabilize, and maybe in some neighborhoods even fall, that they won't say, you know, we own a lot of the housing here, there's a lot of competition, we're just going to stop building kind of let prices climb a little bit or, or recover before we continue. And so when we're so almost entirely dependent on on the market to produce this housing, is there a risk of the market not delivering? Or if you, if you don't find that concern convincing, what do you say to people who really do sincerely have that concern? Yeah, so I think I have a, a theoretical response and an empirical response. Perfect. So my my theoretical response is that I think developers are greedy. They want to make profits. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and there's a lot of not them. In not in a bad way. <laughs> um, so in a place like Los Angeles, prices are way higher than the cost to construct a house. Most of the high price is due to the the land prices. If you start to allow people to build much more densely, you're going to have a lot of houses on any given acre of land, and, and the land's going to become a shrinking amount of the total price of the, the given parcel that contains the housing unit. So I just don't believe that developers, once they now are able to build, say, fourplexes or multifamily apartment buildings, are just going to say, no, we're not going to do it. Um, we don't want to get those profits. And so I, I do think you would sustain building for a sustained period of time in places like Los Angeles, where supply is really is severely constrained and, and pro home prices are so high. And empirically, <laughs> which you always want to test your, your theory with um, empirical data, I think we can point to examples that have, of places that have sustained housing construction over long periods of time. So Atlanta, for instance, um, have not had nearly the, the high housing prices that Los Angeles had. But over the couple of decades before the, the Great Recession and the, the housing bubble, um, but, but even before the housing bubble started, they, they were maintaining housing production of around 3 or 4% every year. And this is a place where home prices were only just a little bit higher than the price to, to build to construct a home. So you can see that even when profit margins are, are not that large, developers are willing to build on a sustained basis. And I would believe that if Los Angeles really did allow for that kind of unencumbered building, that you really would see sustained building because the demand is really strong and it, and it does exist. I do think there's maybe folks who live in places like Los Angeles have gotten used to a world in which... There aren't a ton of developers. There's just, you know, a, a relatively small number of very large developers. And so it feels like it's not an oligopoly, certainly not a monopoly, but it's like closer to that than it should be. Probably it would be great if we had more developers who have more kind of idiosyncrasies and like they're going to compete on different metrics and just the competition generally would be would be more fierce. And so having the policies in place that maybe are not just promoting 
the 50 unit and 100 unit apartment and condo buildings, but are allowing that sort of missing middle, whether it's a four unit apartment or a 10 unit building, those kinds of things where you can have more people entering the market as contractors and developers might be really key to that, to having that increased competition. And just maybe a couple data points in favor of that. I look to you know, Tokyo as a place where it doesn't really have single family zoning. And we think of it as this place with all these towers. But in fact, a lot of the housing construction is in sort of smaller scale Mm -hmm. multifamily, Mm -hmm. like under 10 units, I think, often even single family, but just on very small lots and multi-story and that kind of thing. And we talked with Ryan Greenaway McGreevy several months ago about Auckland's upzoning, where 75% of the city now allows multifamily. But I just saw something only a few weeks ago where when their production increased a lot, it was mostly in sort of the townhome style developments. It wasn't in the larger apartment buildings. And so, again, maybe making room for that kind of development really needs to be a priority uh, and one that we have kind of overlooked thus far. So finally, 90 minutes in, (laughs) the people can cross off missing middle on their bingo card. (laughs) We got there. Yeah, brought up zoning. I'll say it. That's the winning score. Say every other episode. Yeah, missing middle and light touch density. (laughs) Ooh, that's a good one, too. So let's just make this the last question, Kevin. You focused in this paper on the impact of increased supply to rent assistance programs. It's it's a very, I think, deliberately narrow focus. But is there just anything you want to say about kind of the, the broader impacts here and what we're maybe missing by just looking at how housing supply is is affecting, you know, how much we spend or how many people we help with housing choice vouchers. Yeah, I know I shouldn't do this, but I would just say our paper is very, very narrow <laughs> in terms of thinking about all of the major benefits of relaxing restrictions on housing. Again, I, my field has not been on housing supply. It's been on safety net programs. Mm-hmm. But it's just overwhelming how much research has come out on the excessive costs of, of regulations across society from lowering access to high-wage jobs for adults, reducing the ability of kids to go to higher-quality schools, reducing integration across socioeconomic lines, stunting economic growth, imposing environmental costs because people have to drive so far in to mm-hmm. get to work. I, I increasingly think that the the state of, of our housing regulations is a cause of a lot of our problems that have plagued society. And I'm I'm heartened by the fact that, one, people, including me, are, are recognizing it. Um, but it seems that there's more and more sort of bipartisan push that mm-hmm. everyone realizes this is a problem that touches a lot of facets of life. And we should do probably lots of other things. But if we don't tackle the housing supply problem, we, we just aren't going to be able to solve the, those big problems. All right. I love that as a place to end. Kevin Corinth, thank you for joining us on the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. Thanks, Shane. Thank you, Mike. You can read more about Kevin's work on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.